Introducing The Giant's Ladder, written by leading science marketing expert Elizabeth Schaub. Crafted for professionals at the intersection of science and commerce, The Giant's Ladder guides you through a structured approach to marketing scientific discoveries, enabling them to resonate in places that matter most, from laboratories to boardrooms to policy chambers. Get the best-selling book Kirkus describes as a helpfully practical and authoritative introduction to the marketing of scientific products at Amazon and other book retailers today. This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, the academic arm of the Mount Sinai Health System in New York City, and one of America's leading research medical schools. How will advances in artificial intelligence transform medical research and medical care? And what will this mean for patients? To find out, we invite you to read a special supplement to Science Magazine prepared by Icon Mount Sinai in partnership with Science. Just visit our website at www.science.org and search for the Frontiers of Medical Research Artificial Intelligence, the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This is the Science Podcast for September 29th, 2023. I'm Sarah Crespi. First up this week, the latest in our series of books on science, sex, and gender. This month, book's host Angela Saini talks with author and ethnographer Kristen Godsey about her book, Everyday Utopia, in praise of radical alternatives to the traditional family home. Next, we hear a story from a special section on climate change and health. I talk with freelance journalist Vaishnavi Chandrashekar about how researchers in India are studying temperatures in urban centers as climate change turns up the heat. Finally, archaeologist and geographer Morgan Schmidt is here with research into dark earth in the Amazon. We talk about how his work with modern indigenous groups in Brazil, as well as his research at ancient Amazonian ruins, help us understand past and present agricultural practices. I'm Angela Saini, journalist, author, and the host of this special series of book podcasts. Every month, I've been interviewing the writer of some thought-provoking book that explores an aspect of sex and gender. For this, the fifth episode, we're looking to the future. Is it possible to invent societies that don't leave people unhappy, lonely, poor, or exhausted? How might these communities look? And how might that change gender roles inside families? I'm joined by Kristin Godsey, Professor of Russian and East European Studies at the University of Pennsylvania and the author of 12 books, including Why Women Have Better Sex Under Socialism. In her latest, Everyday Utopia, What 2,000 Years of Wild Experiments Can Teach Us About the Good Life, she questions why we as humans seem to feel resigned to inequality. Why do we feel that radical change is unrealistic when in fact we have examples of kinder and more egalitarian communities stretching back millennia. Kristin, your book contains lots of personal reflections on your own life. Can you explain how your upbringing prompted you to question the nuclear family with one father, one mother and their kids? This is always a difficult question for me. I was raised in a household. My mom was Puerto Rican. My dad immigrated to this country late in his life. And there was an 11 year age difference between them. I grew up thinking that the nuclear family was like the best possible way 
you know, with a cul-de-sac and the white picket fence, the whole suburban American dream. I thought that was normal. What I realized through the experience of my own family life, which was not in any way idyllic, <laughs> is that the nuclear family in the suburbs with the white picket fence and the French doors or whatever is not a great model because it hides a lot of negative things that go on behind those chic French doors. Without extended family around or without other caring adults, children can be trapped in really difficult situations. Partners can be trapped in really difficult situations. And in my case, the other loving, caring adult that kind of swooped in to save me was my English teacher with whom I lived for about six months before I went off to college. My English teacher and her husband, their children had grown and they took me in and they took care of me. And it was the first time in my life that I realized that not all families were unhappy. And it made a huge difference in the way I think about the value of the model of the nuclear family. It's a really heartwarming story. And it is a reminder, I think, for so many of us, when we look back on our own lives, just how many other people other than our parents, actually, we do need that are influential and important, maybe not in as profound a way as for you, but certainly all of us need people. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, we have like aunts and uncles and other adults, neighbors, sometimes teachers play an important role as it did in my life. In some religious traditions, you have things like godparents and godparents can be really important to children. It's another set of adults in your life that you can go to. Sometimes it's religious leaders in your community or it's a coach for a sports team. When you think back on your life, your parents are important, but there are so many other adults that have helped you find your way. And it's such a shame that we think that children are better off not having contact with other adults. It's very difficult, particularly if you live in societies in which a nuclear family is the traditional setup, to imagine that there are all these other societies out there, but there really are. Can we just start with the French experiment by Jean-Baptiste André Godin in 1859 to build this social palace? What was this and how did it work? Yeah, it was this incredible experiment that lasted for about 109 years. He was a follower of Charles Fourier, who had this idea of building what's called a phalanstery, which was a big hotel kind of like structure in a rural area where people would live and work and sustain themselves away from the mainstream of French society. Godin took this idea and applied it to his ironworks. It was essentially this huge social palace. He called it the familistery. All the workers lived together, including Godin and his own family. They lived together in this building and they were sort of a self-sustaining community. And towards the end of his life, he actually slowly transferred all of the shares in this social palace and in the factory and in the agricultural grounds around it to the workers. So it became a true workers cooperative until it was finally sold off in 1968. And utopian socialist experiments like these, even when they've ultimately failed, well, depending how you define failure, because I guess every society runs its course eventually, but they have had an impact on how many of us live today. We just don't always realize that. For example, the idea of kindergartens and nursery and kind of communal leisure centers, things like this. They were all utopian ideas, as was the idea of no-fault divorce. 
If we look at the Saint-Simonians in the aftermath of the French Revolution, they were really demanding that women be able to divorce and keep custody of their children in the event of a divorce. These are things we kind of take for granted, as is childcare, as is other types of being in the world that were once these outrageous utopian demands. People said, oh, that will never happen. Women's equality would be a good one here too. And yet these days, we take a lot of these things absolutely for granted because we forget that they had their origin in this utopian thinking. And why is it that we don't make that connection anymore? Why do we forget their roots? I think it's because we have this thing called status quo bias. We tend to hew closer to what we know than to change things because human beings have this tendency to want to avoid feeling regret. And we know from social psychology that we're more likely to regret decisions that we did make than decisions that we didn't make when we just didn't do anything and then something bad happened. It's not our fault. We don't have to take responsibility, so we don't feel regret. And in the case of these utopian ideas, I think there's a fantasy that a lot of the rights and privileges and things that we have today just sort of appeared out of whole cloth. And we forget that there were people behind those ideas who fought for those ideas. Yeah, and I think that's one of the themes in your book, certainly that utopian societies or better lives, better worlds in terms of gender don't just magically appear. They're not inevitable. It's not as though society will do it anyway. They really do have to be fought for. Yes, absolutely. And I think that that's the message of the book is that these utopian experiments, some of them are quite short, some of them are much longer. I mean, if you start to think about things like Buddhism or especially early Christianity, like pre-325 Christianity, these were really utopian communities. <laughs> they were very critical of the societies within which they lived. They were very much outside of the mainstream Ironically, if you think about the world's 1.2 billion Catholics right now, they're a conservative force by and large, not exclusively, but they started out as one of the wildest and most successful utopian communities that you could imagine. And so I do think that we have to remember that people dream and that dreaming is a form of politics. It's a form of political activism because at the end of the day, the way the world changes is because a bunch of people have a vision for how the world could be better. And they go out there and they try to make that world a reality. And just speaking of religion, there are also many case studies in your book of religious communities living communally. For instance, the Bruderhof colonies in Germany. Can you describe that one in particular? Yeah. So, I mean, I think that in the Bible, in Acts 2 and Acts 4, there are verses that very clearly state that the disciples of Christ owned all of their property in common and lived communally. And that when one of them had need, the others sort of sold what they had and gave the money to the community. The Bruderhof are a really interesting group that is growing. They're present here also in Pennsylvania. They're in the UK. They're in Australia and Korea. They come from the Hutterites, which is an earlier group, but these are groups within Christianity that really take Acts 2 and 4 seriously, and they live together in what we would think of really as communes, sort of Christian pacifist communes. But I do think there are a lot of religious communities like the Bruderhof. There's the Catholic Workers Movement, where religion 
inspires a particular kind of utopian vision, which then they live out in their daily lives by rearranging the way they do family, the way they live and dwell in buildings, and the way they raise their children and educate their children. They try to build communities where human connection is more important than any kind of consumerism or capitalist striving. There's this idea that really true peace and harmony is in community. There are also secular experiments like Twin Oaks, which is now older than 50 years in the United States. Similar, trying to raise children in common, own property in common, be relatively self-sustaining. And I think that the importance of these communities is even though they're small, even though they are somewhat marginal to our societies, they show us how things can be different, that people in this world right now are living in a different way. And that can be really inspiring. Mm, yeah, absolutely. And what have people living in these communities told you themselves about their experiences? Are they truly idyllic, these communities, or do they have their own problems? Of course they have their own problems. I mean, <laughs> no place is perfect. And I think that that's the key thing about utopia, right? Utopia is always on the horizon. It's not ever going to be a place that you get to. The minute somebody says, or some official says, we are in utopia, you know you're in trouble. It becomes rigid, sometimes can devolve into a weird cult, or you have like a charismatic leader. Utopia always has to be on the horizon. And so, of course, a bunch of people living together, whether they're family or not family, is always going to have its own challenges. But what I think these communities do really well and what people living in these communities have told me is that unlike families where there aren't clear guidelines about what to do in case of a conflict or different ideas of how the world should be organized or how people should live or how clean something should be. These communities have pretty clear guidelines, which they discuss through consensus mechanisms, and they kind of come to an agreement and they have ways to deal with disagreements. It's a very conscious, thoughtful process. One strand of your argument is that this kind of collective or communal living can improve women's lives. How and why is that? Yeah, so there have actually been some empirical studies on what co-housing does for gender relations. So some of this is about intentional communities. Some of this is about co-housing. But what the research generally finds is that most of these communities have a labor requirement. And this is, by the way, true of the Bruderhof communities as well. So there's a certain amount of labor that has to be done each week by people in the community in order for the community to be sustaining. And it turns out that women's what we usually think of as unpaid labor in the home, the kind of care work, the cuddling and the caressing and the cleaning and all the things that women do in the home to sustain the family and to sustain the community, all of that counts as labor in these collectives. And so women's contributions to the community are seen as equal to other types of contributions, which is not true outside of these communities. Furthermore, there are some great empirical studies that show that in communities where chores are shared and where there is a kind of expectation of community work around things like cooking and cleaning and childcare, women's domestic burdens actually take up fewer hours of a week than they do in communities where women are basically doing everything on their own in their own homes. So from a very feminist point of view, co-housing and 
intentional community living, this sort of eco-village living is another model in Europe. All of it really addresses this problem of gender inequality in the home by valuing women's labor in a way that it is not valued in the mainstream society. What you're essentially saying is that all types of work are considered of equal value. There is no such thing as unpaid work then in some of these communities that you're talking about, which is quite revolutionary when you think about it in terms of gender. Exactly. I mean, there was this Oxfam study that showed that $10.9 trillion is the amount of value, the minimum amount of value that women around the world contribute to the global economy through their unpaid labor. That's more than like the top 50 Fortune 500 companies put together. It's an amazing amount of work that women do to subsidize. And it's not only women, but any caregivers in the home of any gender who is not being paid for their care work is subsidizing our global economy in this really profound way. As you explain in your book, the nuclear family can be very exhausting for people. It can put an extra burden because you can't share all that labor that needs to be done at home. Why then is it so widespread? Why do people live in nuclear families if it's not the ideal way to live? Yeah. And I think this is a great question because I think what happens and the argument that I put forward in the book is that the nuclear family upholds a particular intergenerational transfer of wealth and privilege that allows for the maintenance of inequality in our society. Children are an incredible public good. They are future workers and taxpayers and consumers, perhaps soldiers. And so they're very, very valuable to our elites, but the elites don't want to pay for them. And I do think that we have kind of been duped into thinking that the romantic relationship is the appropriate container for child rearing and that exclusive biparental care is the ideal circumstance for children. And again, if we look at empirical evidence, we have wonderful over 100 years of evidence from collective childbearing experiments, for instance, on the kibbutzim in Israel. We see that children truly do thrive in a community of loving, caring adults and that the way we're doing things is really a historical aberration and ultimately a mistake. Hmm. And I mean, to be honest, all of us, when we send our kids to school, when we send them to camp, daycare, whatever it is, we are kind of practicing that much broader community model of childcare, even if we don't imagine it that way, because we still live in nuclear families. Um, you do write moments of political uncertainty, which we seem to be in right now. There's so much global turmoil and, and division, especially exacerbated by the kind of urgent impact of climate change, that in moments like this, you often get people turning to utopian dreaming. Do you see that happening now? People wishing, hoping for a radically different future? You know, I do. I think that it's especially happening among the Greens and the ecological movement. I also think that within feminist circles and some more left political circles, there's been a turn away from this idea that the state is the solution to our problems to a more kind of devolved grassroots, bottom up sort of, hey, maybe we should take charge and do something ourselves. It takes a lot for people to break out of their status quo bias. But it is, the pandemic was truly an upheaval. It is a plastic moment that we're living through. It may not feel like it, but just look at how desperate corporations are to get workers to come back to the office, for instance. How much people have dug their heels in on remote work. 
And I also think that during the pandemic, people rushed out to form pandemic pods to raise their kids and share childcare and homeschooling and things like that. People engaged in mutual aid experiments with their natures for things like grocery shopping. People suddenly opened their minds to the possibility that there are other ways of living in community. And I think there's a going to reverberate. It might not feel like it at just this moment, but I think they are going to reverberate throughout our society because people are hungry for a different model. Kristen Godsey, thank you so much for your time. Thanks so much for having me. This was really fun. And thank you at home for listening. I'm Angela Saini. And in the next book segment, I'll be speaking to the authors of Lab Hopping about the experiences of women and non-binary scientists in India. See you then. Up next, I talk with Vaishnavi Chandrashekar about how India looks to beat climate-induced heat. Researchers at Queen's University Belfast translate research into action and make sense of a rapidly changing world. They keep up with technological, societal, and economic advances and drive change through collaboration and real-world partnerships. Their research leads to critical breakthroughs in areas such as green technology, food and agricultural sustainability, peacebuilding, and healthcare. Queen's University Belfast network of international researchers has a reputation for global excellence. Over 99% of their research was assessed as world-leading or internationally excellent in REF 2021. The impact of this research is felt around the world. Visit qub.ac.uk to find out how Queen's University Belfast is bringing research to reality. In a special issue on climate and health this week, we have stories on changing malaria patterns, heat and pregnancy health, migrating birds, bringing diseases to new places, and from freelance journalist Vaishnavi Chandrashankar, a story on efforts in India to understand heat patterns in urban areas and how to prevent heat deaths in the short and long term. Hi, Vaishnavi. Welcome to the Science Podcast. Hi, great to be here. What drew your attention to the story now? Last year, there was a record-breaking heat wave in South Asia and in India. And this year, there was also a heat wave in North India, as well as in, in Mumbai, where I was, and where we saw a heat stroke event in which many people died. And so that's why we're looking at it now. For the story, you met with a researcher doing this work, studying heat in cities, trying to figure out you know, the best ways to prevent heat deaths. Can you talk a little bit about what you saw on your visit yeah, so I went to visit uh, a scientist, an urban planner and architect called Rajeshri Kotarkar in Nagpur, which is a sort of medium-sized city in, the, in central India. It's one of the hottest cities in India. The temperatures can go up to like 48, 49 degrees Celsius, close to 120 degrees Fahrenheit. She works in the local university there. And for the last 10 years, she has been studying urban heat very closely in that one city to try and understand how built form influences local temperature. She set up temperature humidity sensors in different parts of the city, more the sparse fringe areas, as well as the central highly built up area, as well as the government areas, which have very large gardens and parks. 
this is probably the longest running urban heat study in India. I can't think of any other one that's quite like this. She slowly built up a picture of how urban heat functions, what influences it. Her team has gone out and interviewed people in a heat wave to try and understand how they perceive heat. I thought this was really interesting, the idea that if you're someone who grew up with the heat, you might not notice that things are getting really extreme. Last year, there was a heat wave in India and she sent her, you know, the team went out and they put up their sensors and stuff on the road to record the temperature and humidity and wind speed. And then side by side, they interviewed people, pedestrians and passersby to try and understand how they experienced it. Many of them were like, oh, it's always been like this. <laughs> it's hot. It's always been hot, you know, in the summer. And this is something other researchers also say is that people who live in a hot climate often take it for granted and they don't recognize it as a hazard or as a risk. And I would say that's true because India didn't recognize heat wave related emergencies as a hazard nationally until 2015, which is really recent. <laughs> yeah, but this research has been going on. No, the research has been going on for a while. It's just that I think that, you know, they talk about heat as a silent killer sometimes because it's not like a cyclone or a hurricane or a flood that just happens in... Or earthquake, yeah. Yeah, in one instance it happens and one day it happens and there's a sudden calamity and all these deaths and destruction. You know, heat produces a different kind of calamity. Yeah, and you just need that unexpected sequence of hot days and nights and people don't even realize that they're building up to danger. Right. Absolutely. What are some of the important factors that researchers need to understand or track in order to make predictions or to protect people? Yeah. So one of the ways in which India has been looking at responding to heat waves is to develop these what are known as heat action plans. And these are plans developed at the state and district and city level that look at how to issue alert, when to issue alert. Some of them have been very successful and some of them are still in the stage of being developed and improved upon. But one of the things that researchers are really interested in and disaster management authorities are also really interested in is when to issue an alert. And one of the things they've found is that the usual thresholds, temperature thresholds for issuing a heat wave alert is a national threshold. And that doesn't work at the local level. There might be some differences town to town, city to city that make that threshold not as usable or not as useful for the people that live there. Yes, exactly. And so one city, Ahmedabad, which has been very much at the forefront of dealing with heat wave deaths, and they did that after a tragedy many years ago. For example, what they did was they looked at mortality deaths in the city and they try and correlated it with maximum temperatures. And they set their own threshold. Yeah. And that was different from what was given as a national threshold. And so one of the big things that researchers are looking at is how can we set thresholds that make sense for the local climate, whether that's in the district or in the city. For example, in a coastal city, you might look at humidity because humidity also affects how we experience heat and it can amplify the effect of heat. And so in a coastal city, you might also want to integrate humidity as one of the you know, indices when you set thresholds for heat alert. What about this idea of a vulnerability map? How does that fit in with these action plans? 
a couple of the cities that have done these heat action plans have actually identified which populations in their city or their district are most vulnerable. And that vulnerability might be because they live in an area without good water or there's a very large population of elderly people there who are more sort of susceptible. They may have other ailments that make them you know, more susceptible to sort of heat stress. And this is something that is being recommended for every district and city is it's not just how hot is it, but how vulnerable are people to that heat. Yeah. And that's determined by a lot of different factors, socioeconomic factors, age, a number of things. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit more about the socioeconomic factors here. The people who are most vulnerable to heat are elderly, but also you don't have AC, you don't have air conditioning, you're going to be in trouble if it gets really hot. And that's the big thing is that a lot of people um, in cities are poor and many of them will live in informal kind of housing. They're not going to be able to afford air conditioning. And so they are going to be more vulnerable to the effect of heat. And many of them in these informal settlements also are living in houses that could amplify the effect of heat. For example, they might have tin roofs, which kind of increase the heat inside the house. What are some of the steps in a heat action plan? Once it goes into effect, the warning goes out, what else would happen? Usually what happens is that they sort of adopt a heat action plan before the summer. Basically, it sets the protocol for when they should issue an alert. In Narco, for example, they advise hospitals to set aside some beds for you know, heat stroke ailments. That means that particular section or ward has things like cold packs and you know, they're ready for a potential heat-related illness or heat stroke. They might also give advisories to, say, a builder or real estate developer to cut working hours or shift working hours during a heat wave. Oh, if you're working outdoors, right? Yes, because people who work outdoors are obviously going to be most affected. These are the very sort of emergency response, short-term action that should happen. They don't always happen, even if it's on paper. Mm -hmm. And then many of these plans also look to longer-term kind of solutions. There could be better ways of building buildings. There could be planting trees. What are people thinking in the medium to long term to prevent more heat deaths over maybe the next couple of decades? Yeah, I think one of the medium term, medium to long term solutions that researchers would like to see government take up is, for example, how much can you increase the green cover in a particular area? How many more trees can you plant? Because that brings the temperature down and that also provides shade sort of increasing green cover in general, but also identifying where best that cover should be increased. And that's one definite solution that comes up all the time. Mm -hmm. You also talk about retrofitting buildings. So taking the structures that are there and altering them so that they can better withstand the heat. A long-term solution would obviously be to build things that are more climate resilient, which means that the materials they use, the design they use, kind of maximizes cooling it preserves energy and it reduces heat. But there's a lot of existing housing and buildings that are there. And what are you going to do about them? I think the concern especially is about people who live in poorer settlements. Not only do they not have air conditioning, but also their housing is not very climate resilient either. And so one really popular retrofit method that's coming up in India is is painting the roof of these low-income dwellings, and not just low-income, but many buildings, with a special reflective paint, usually white, but it usually has some special pigments that increase the reflectability of that material, of the paint material. And that helps reduce the temperature of the room below. Yeah. You also talked about basically putting a hat on a roof. So a second roof over the top, over the roof that's already there. How does that help? This is an experiment that a small firm is doing in one of the slums in, in Bombay and some other cities 
where they're experimenting with adding a second layer of a roof that can be also opened and closed over the existing roof. And the way that it works is that that additional layer, it sort of protects the roof from the heat of the sun during the day. It reduces how much heat can get absorbed by the roof. And then they construct it in such a way that the people can actually open it at night. And when you open it at night, then the heat that's in the roof that has been accumulating the whole day under the sun gets released or radiates back into the sky. And that also helps cool down the whole structure. You know, this is some of the experiments that are going on and trying to find ways to retrofit these smaller homes. I thought it was really interesting that you pointed out that older style buildings actually have more resilience to heat than newer buildings. Before we had cooling systems in our buildings, before electricity, before power and building traditionally everywhere in the world were built, designed for the local climate, which means that if you were in a cold climate, the home was traditionally designed to insulate the home from the cold. And if you're in a hot climate like India, all the traditional buildings are built to maximize cooling, maximize airflow and keep out the heat. And you do see many, many examples of that throughout the country. I went to see a traditional house in Nagpur and they also have the concept of the double roof and that helps protect the structure from absorbing heat. So there, there's a lot of lessons to be learned from these traditional structures and maximizing design for local climate. One of the things going on in India now, and actually many other countries, is people leaving rural areas and moving into cities, into urban environments. And those places, they have a lot more concentration of heat because of the buildings, because of the pavements. And it's not just the biggest cities in India are going to get bigger, but also smaller, mid-sized cities are also going to get much bigger. Is that development being planned for with heat in mind? Is heat part of the equation here? Urbanization is maximum in Asia and in India right now. One of the reasons researchers focus on urban heat is because we expect many more people to be living, millions more people to be living in cities in the next few decades. And the process of urbanization itself, which is you know the removal of forests and fields and trees, replacing it with concrete and buildings, generates its own heat. There's one study that estimates that urban expansion alone could increase night temperatures by one degree in cities and by as much as two to three degrees in some of the largest cities. There have been moves in recent years at the federal level, at the central government level, to create guidelines for more climate resilient buildings that kind of maximize energy savings and cooling potential in these buildings. But they're very unevenly implemented. Not many states and districts have adopted them yet. They've not been mandated in most parts of India. And so although the moves have begun to be made on the ground, they still remain very much on paper. A lot more needs to happen on the ground. You make this point in your story that the old-timey buildings were built to maximize the response to the climate. Yeah. And the new, the new way to build things has more to do with the builders. When it comes to cities and large cities in India, but I mean, this is not just in India, anywhere. Yeah. Development is often driven by property prices mm-hmm. and, and real estate markets and things like that. And to truly make cities cooler in India or to make them more sustainable, the actual urban planning is required to ensure that there's a certain amount of green cover, for example, or there's a certain amount of ponds or lakes, and that some areas don't get too built up. That kind of holistic urban planning approach is much harder to persuade both government and industry to kind of adopt, you know, especially in really big cities. Real estate is so expensive and and such a prime mover of development. 
So that can feel a little out of sync. In fact, I think earlier this year at a workshop, one of the officials in the National Disaster Management Authority, he actually said the built form is going in one direction, which is sort of increasing heat stress. And the kind of built form that you need for global warming is going in another direction. And that kind of needs to be matched up more. I mean, one of the things that Rajeshri in Nagpur, one of, one of the things she's hopeful about is that a lot of these smaller towns that are growing now, not the big, big cities like Delhi and Bombay, but the smaller ones that aren't under quite so much pressure and are building their housing stock now, there's still time for intervention. There's still time to change that and make them more sustainable and cooler and climate resilient. Whereas maybe the biggest cities like Delhi, Bombay, Bangalore, Calcutta, those are beyond a point you can't do much. Really interesting. Thanks, Vaishnavi. Oh, thank you. Uh, it was great to be here. Vaishnavi Chandrashakar is a freelance journalist based in Mumbai. You can find a link to the story we discussed, plus the entire special issue on climate and health at science.org slash podcast. Stay tuned for my chat with Morgan Schmidt on how ancient Amazonians improve the soil. In the Amazon, around ancient ruins from ancient societies, you can find terra preta, or dark earth. This is a nutrient-rich soil that seems to coincide with where people lived a long time ago. But if you go to modern indigenous villages, they do have something similar. Now we have Morgan Schmidt. He and his colleagues wrote in Science Advances last week about the intentional creation of so-called dark earth in ancient Amazonia. Hi, Morgan. Hi. How did you first get involved in this kind of work, looking into the origins and creation of this stuff called Dark Earth? Thank you so much for inviting me. I was working on my master's research in the Amazon, the main Amazon river on the floodplain called the Varzia. I was working with a community where there was dark earth all over and also a number of burial urns that were eroding out of the ground. Because I was studying traditional Amazonian agriculture, I was really interested in indigenous agriculture. And when I saw this dark earth, it was really mysterious to me. I really was curious as to how, what they were doing and, and how it was formed. Around the Amazon, we think, you know, oh, it's such a lush place. It's got so much diversity, so much growth. But actually, the soil is pretty depleted with all that stuff going on. So dark earth can be pretty important, I guess, if you're a farmer to have this kind of extra nutritious soil. That's right. The vegetation is very lush in the rainforest, but the normal soils in the Amazon, the dominant soils are highly weathered tropical soils, which means that they're very old and they've had a lot of rain falling on them for a long time, which washes the nutrients away in a process called leaching. They're very low in nutrients. They're acidic, which means they have a low pH. And because they're so acidic, they also have problems with aluminum toxicity. So for the majority of crops, it's really a problem. Although for manioc, which is one of the staple crops in the Amazon and also of the indigenous people that I worked with, the Kwikuru, is their staple crop. And it doesn't require such nutrient-rich soils. But everything else they plant, they tend to seek out these dark earth soils or they create them themselves in their backyard. Right. There is this evidence that dark soils have been around for a long time and that they are often located in 
ruins in archaeological sites where Amazonian peoples lived thousands of years ago. But the question has kind of been for a long time in the research is, were these created intentionally by peoples of the past or were they more incidental? Can you talk about what some of the ideas are about where dark earth might have come from? Dark earth soils in the Amazon are are very ancient. There's some that have been found that are 5,000 or 6,000 years old. But this is something that's common around the world in archaeological sites to have deposits of dark sediments in wherever people lived and were throwing away organic materials. So when scientists first started going into the Amazon and they were looking at these soils, they noticed a huge difference between dark earth soils and then the natural soils in the fertility. And they noticed that people tended to seek out these soils to plant crops. They came up with some hypotheses, and one of the hypotheses was it was simply organic waste from domestic habitation or what they call kitchen middens. Archaeologists like to talk about middens or trash middens where people threw away organic remains along with other more durable remains like ceramics. There was a Brazilian scientist who discovered that there were dark soils in the center of these sites and lighter soils on the periphery of the sites. The idea was that the soil on the periphery of archaeological sites that may not be the really typical dark black soil that was called terra preta in Brazil, but it's more of a brown soil. It's high in organic matter and has a lot of charcoal, but not a lot of artifacts are found. So it was proposed that the soil was formed through cultivation. And the idea or the hypothesis was that it could have been intentional. Some later scientists, they introduced another hypothesis that maybe they were using some kind of technology to manufacture dark earth. So it wasn't just an incidental, oh, well, we have a garbage pile and eventually the garbage pile fertilizes the soil, but they're intentionally creating this mixture that will support crops. Right. Until today, it's one of the biggest questions about dark earth formation is whether it was could have been created intentionally or not. Mm-hmm. One of the key parts of the study that we're talking about today is that you worked with indigenous people in the Amazon that appear to still be making dark earth today. What did you learn about how dark earth is made in this village by these people? Sure. A professor at University of Florida, Dr. Michael Heckenberger, he had been working with the Kwikuru in the Upper Shingu since 1992 or 1993. And he got funding from the United States National Science Foundation of an ongoing project, but a, a new segment of the project in 2002. Because he knew I was interested in studying the origins of dark earth, he invited me to come down on the project. So my PhD research was to investigate the formation of dark earth in an ethno-archaeological context. So that meant that I could stay in the village and I could see different areas of the village where people were carrying out different activities. For example, like a fire hearth or a manioc processing area, a backyard, a plaza, the center or the periphery of the plaza, a trash midden, an area of refuse disposal. And I could go directly to those areas and take samples and then analyze those samples. I could see that many of the different activities in in the village today modify the soil, but 
where you have really dark earth forming is in the trash bin area, the refuse disposal area, where sometimes these trash bins build up to like a half a meter or more. It kind of looks like a sprawling compost pile and you get this really dark soil, dark fertile soil forming in these trash bins. And the Kwikuru, like in the first couple of years, they start cultivating that soil. They might plant bananas or sweet potatoes or papaya. And they'll typically plant a, like a mango tree on top of a midden. And then when that tree grows up and starts providing shade, they use that as an activity area under the shade of the tree. The trash bin area, refuse disposal area, expands further out. So in that way, this area of dark earth production keeps expanding. And it's a multi-year process. Right. This is just one of the study sites that were used for the paper. Where else did you sample from? Where else did you find dark earth? We worked in a current Kwikuru indigenous village. And then we also worked in a couple of historically abandoned villages that were abandoned either maybe 30 or 80 years in the past, as well as several archaeological sites. These sites were occupied during approximately one millennium, so over a thousand years, from approximately 750 AD until 1500 AD. When you compared between all these different sites, an abandoned site, an archaeological site, and the modern site, how similar were the dark earths from these different places? What we found is that the range of modifications of the soil, the chemical analysis revealed not just similarities, but pretty much identical elements or nutrients in the soil that have been elevated by human activities. All these elements and nutrients like phosphorus, potassium, calcium, magnesium, manganese, copper, zinc, they were all greatly elevated in the current village particularly in the Trashman area. And then those were the same suite of elements that were also enriched in archaeological sites. Mm -hmm. So do you feel like this makes you more sure that back in the day, in these abandoned sites or in the archaeological sites, that the creation of the dark earth was intentional and it was part of their agricultural practices? One part of it is the composition of the soil, which is the same, although there's differences over time. Some of these nutrients are lost in the soil, like some of the, uh, the organic carbon is, is slowly reduced over time and other nutrients are leached. So the quantity gets lower, but it still is extremely high. And the other thing is the pattern, the distribution of modified soils. So there's a, a similarities in the settlement pattern the layout of the village, and therefore also the layout of the, the trash bins between the archaeological sites and the modern villages. Oh, wow. That's super interesting. What else did you do to kind of like make this connection between the modern times and the ancient times? The main things we did were we did the archaeological research, mapping of sites, and then soil sampling and analysis of the, the samples. And a new part of this article that just came out in Science Advances is we interviewed people, especially the elders in the community who are more experienced, and we interviewed them about their beliefs about Terra Preta, about Dark Earth, and their practices of refuse disposal and soil management, along with cultivation. And what came out in these interviews 
to me was incredible because it really confirmed what we were sort of thinking is that these people, they know what they're doing. Yeah. <laughs> when they're throwing away their refuse, they know it's going to create dark earth. But in addition to that, we also found out that they purposefully spread ash and charcoal and organic waste on the soil as fertilizer to improve the soil and to ultimately create dark earth. And this with the intention of creating fertile soil for their cultivation. Does dark earth contain more carbon? I know you mentioned charcoal and ash being in there. The dark earths hold large amounts of carbon. We measure the organic carbon in the soil, but there's also a lot of charcoal in the soil, which doesn't come in to that organic carbon analysis. If we did an analysis of total carbon, which we're, we're starting to do right now on some of our new samples, what we found is that the amount of carbon stored in some of our prehistoric dark earth sites is equal to the above ground biomass of the forest. Wow. And so the implication of this is that, well, couldn't we expand on this practice and couldn't we put more carbon into the soil through sustainable agricultural practices? And not just thinking about large monocultures, industrial agriculture, but we really need to learn from the indigenous people's practices, uh, what they've done for millennia, how they've sequestered carbon and stored it in the soil and how they've created these fertile soils. So what else would you like to know about dark earth practices, you know, from way back when or even from today? What else would you like to look into? Our research right now is really focusing on areas in between the ancient settlements. So we know that there's a lot of dark earth in the ancient settlements, but these areas in between are pretty much unknown. We've heard reports by local like Kwikudu farmers where they say the dark earth stretches from one site all the way to the next site that may be like three or four kilometers away. We can see also not only from those reports from the farmers, but from satellite images, the dark earth, the archaeological sites show up as like patches of modified forest, a forest that looks different. Sometimes you can see remnants of this modified soil, or what we believe is modified soil, covering the whole area in between two ancient settlements. What we're doing now is investigating sites that are more in between or that they weren't major archaeological sites, but they appear to have a brown soil, very scattered artifacts. They may have been used for a residence for a shorter period of time, or they may have been just used for fields. And so we're trying to get a handle on this variability of the soil over the whole entire landscape, not just in the archaeological sites, but between them. Thanks so much for talking with me, Morgan. Thank you so much for having me. Morgan Schmidt is an archaeologist and geographer in the Department of Interdisciplinary Studies in Archaeology at the Federal University of Santa Catarina in Brazil. You can find a link to the Science Advances paper we discussed at science.org slash podcast. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can listen to the show on our website, science.org slash podcast, or search for Science Magazine on any podcasting app. This show was edited by me, Sarah Crespi, and Kevin McLean with production help from Podigy. Special thanks to Angela Saney and Valerie Thompson for their work on the book segment. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. 
On behalf of Science and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started.